finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things. Also, you're my mom. I don't know if that's a real hook, but I feel like that might be a hook for the podcast, so I should remind people, because, like, I don't think a lot of people do podcasts with their moms. I know of one podcast that some dudes do with their dad. And that's it. That's all I can think of. So So we're really hitting that niche market of sure. mother-son podcast about literature? I mean, yeah. I think so. I think we might be the only one that exists. Okay. It's entirely possible. It's like that thing where like, you can't shuffle a deck without coming up with a unique combination that's never been done before. It's like, wait, I don't know where I was going with that. Anyway, we what did we read this week? We read Sandman. Yes, we the read... The first collected volume. The one that we read, which was Nocturnes. We read the, we read the Sandman, Volume 1, Preludes and Nocturnes. Preludes and Nocturnes. Written by Neil Gaiman with art by Sam Keith, Mike, Dring, Mike Dringenberg. I keep wanting to call him Drinkenberg for some reason. Malcolm Jones III. And then colors by Daniel Vazo, letters by Todd Klein, and then all the covers are by Dave McKean, who did most of the early Vertigo books covers. Not that this... We'll get into it. Well, this series was published between 1989 and 1996, so it's right in that sweet spot where it's still very 80-ish, but really getting into the early aesthetic of the 90s. And I also honestly think impacting some of the aesthetic of the 90s, at least as far as sort of like, you know goth subcultures and just sort of counterculture in general at the time. I mean, Sandman is a hugely popular comic. Well, if you were in a coma from 1989 to 1996 and you do not know what the Sandman series is, can you give us a brief sort of overview of what the series is about? Uh, sure. So, it is about Dream or Morpheus or the Sandman who is one of the endless, who are, like, um, physical embodiments of concepts of, like, there's dream, death, desire, delirium, destruction, destiny, and despair. Right. And then at some point, delirium switches to become delight, or vice versa. She was delight first, and then she became delirium because of an unspecified event. And when the series starts, dream has been captured in a glass bottle by an occultist for several decades and most of the first volume deals with him trying to get back his stuff that he lost while he was missing the rest of the series sort of deals with him kind of figuring out where he goes next from there and encountering some stuff from his past and just sort of exploring this world and this mythology that neil gaiman and his collaborators created so the first seven issues in this compiled volume are referred to as more than rubies and that's the intro to dream and then the eighth one sound of her wings is the introduction to death another one of the endless yeah we see two of the other endless besides dream in this we get a brief appearance by destiny right which is not doesn't have a lot of context it's just kind of like a brief shot of him reacting to something big happening and that's it but I think what's interesting about the series, it, it really starts to, um, it sort of blends like literature and mythology and fantasy 
into this story that sort of makes a lot of um, references to comic book culture and some famous works. And, you know, there's some parts that are about Shakespeare and there's a mention of Norse mythology. And you can speak more about the comic book connection and the characters, especially that show up in the first seven issues. A lot of them are, are famous superheroes or in the superhero world. Sure. I think that a lot of Sandman is sort of Neil Gaiman processing the ideas raised by, like, Joseph Campbell, and then also stuff like The Golden Bough. Like, there's a lot of stuff about, like, mythology and stories and dreams and the sort of collective unconscious, which is basically what the dreaming, which the the realm that dream has power over is. It's sort of a interpretation of the collective unconscious that sort of connects us all and stories come from it later on we learn that all gods are born and die in the dreaming but i mean as for the comic book stuff i guess i could give a little background on the series if if you think that would be yeah i think that would be interesting so you can kind of it all goes back to this woman named karen berger and karen berger is she was an editor for dc but the thing that's notable about her not the thing that's notable about her but like Something you should understand about her is that she was an art history and English literature major. And so she, you know, started working at DC. And I think her earliest books she did were like Wonder Woman and Amethyst Princess of Gem World. And I think she specifically worked on the George Perez Wonder Woman run, which notably brought in a ton of mythology stuff. Most of the like greek myth elements that we associate with wonder woman now were really solidified in that george perez run like that's where she fights Ares most of the time and like i think a bunch of the gods die in that and then the next really notable thing she did was she took over for len ween as the editor on saga of the swamp thing which is alan moore's first like really major work in american comics and that kind of laid the groundwork for everything she would do afterwards She's known mostly for being in charge of Vertigo comics. And Swamp Thing is kind of the prototype for what a Vertigo book is like. It's a really wild reinvention of a character. It explores a lot of darker and edgier themes. It has a lot of references to literature and mythology and philosophy in it. It's got art that doesn't really look like your standard superhero comic art. Uh, There are Dave McKean covers, which is notable. And then when Alan Moore fell out with DC and said he was never going to work for them again and took his ball and went home, he was later sort of tricked into working for DC again. <laughs> but that is a story for another time. Also, Neil Gaiman is friends with Alan Moore. Yeah. So that was the, the, the thing. Once Alan Moore left to kind of fill the void, or at least that's my understanding of it, she started hiring a lot of other British writers. She was DC's liaison to Britain, or at least to the, Britain, the British comic scene. And she's responsible for what a lot of people call the British invasion of comics. Alan Moore was kind of the first wave. And then she hired uh, Jamie Delano, Neil Gaiman, and Grant Morrison, and Peter Milligan, among others, to come over and do the works that ended up being the foundation for Image Comics. So you have Grant Morrison on Animal Man and Doom Patrol. You have Neil Gaiman initially on Black Orchid and then on Sandman. Jamie Delano was the writer of Hellblazer, starring our boy John Constantine, who we see in this. And then Peter Milligan wrote Shade the Changing Man, which is kind of the the uh, the black sheep of that group. It's the least well-known, I think, but it's a, it's a real good comic. And there's a there's sort of an update of it going on right now. 
But those books ended up kind of becoming their own sort of corner of the universe, which called the Burgerverse. That was what people referred to it as early on. And then that eventually evolved into its own imprint, which was Vertigo, which launched with all of those books and became this sort of artsier, more mature imprint of DC that's still running to today. And so the thing with Sandman was a lot of these, all these early Vertigo books, except for Hellblazer, which is a spitoff of a new character, are sort of reinventions of older characters. That's kind of the hallmark of like an early Vertigo book. And Sandman was originally supposed to be a reinvention of this Grant, um, sorry, of this Jack Kirby comic called Sandman that was like about a superhero who existed in dreams, and it's real weird. There's a whole issue where he fights a race of seal people. Let's put a pin in that seal people thing because I have something to talk about later on in the podcast involving seals. Sort of, yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> Originally, the idea was that this was going to be a reboot of that, which I can't even imagine what that would have been like. I have a vague idea, and we'll get to it later on. But Karen Berger basically told Gaiman, like, okay, do that this idea you have, but do it with a new character that we haven't seen before. And he, in like interviews and stuff, always kind of presents this as like an editor's stroke of genius that pushed him on the right path. My theory, though, is just that those characters had been recently used in a comic called Infinity, Inc., and so she was like, oh, let's do this comic, but, like, not mess with the Infinity Ink stuff. Which he does later mess with, but not initially. And so Sandman is, starts as, you know, because it's pre-Vertigo and it's DC in the 80s, it starts as a DC Universe book. Like, Sandman starts firmly in the post-crisis DC Universe, and we see a lot of DC characters in it. Well, I think that, I mean, I, I observed, I'm not an expert, I'm not a comic bookologist, but I observed that in the first collected volume, there are more references to DC characters than in the rest of the remaining volumes. Yeah, it definitely moves further away from DC characters. I don't think that ever leaves, though, because the climax of the series hinges on a character from Infinity, Inc., actually. Uh, I can't remember her name. Lita Hall, I think. But we'll get to that way later. That's like eight volumes down the line. But it definitely moves further and further away from the established DC continuity as it built its own mythology to sort of supplant that. But, and I think you see, like, it, Vertigo doesn't launch until like number 46. And that's when those books kind of start to become their own thing away from the mainstream DC comics. So for a while, yeah, it, it is pretty firmly entrenched in that internal dc mythology i think it's also important to note that at the time that neil gaiman was writing this he was more known for writing comics he doesn't publish good omens with terry pratchett until 1990 and then in 1996 he published neverwhere which starts to get him some traction as a, a, a novelist and then his big work currently in 2001 is american gods so his sort of reputation is emerging novelist, well-established, well-known comic book writer. Yeah, his reputation has kind of flipped over the years because initially I definitely thought of him as a comic book writer. Like when I read American Gods, I was like, this is a novel by the Sandman guy. Whereas I think he has flipped over time to be a novelist who used to do comics and still does occasionally, but not very often at all. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And I think now, especially with the popularity of his novels and short stories, he is becoming sort of known as a novelist. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't diminish the quality of work that he does in either genre. And I think he's also one of those writers, we talked about this briefly last podcast, about creative people who can work in more than one genre. So he is... He is able to write comics and novels and short stories and poetry and screenplays. He does a lot of performance art. Mm -hmm. He does a lot of different genres and a lot of different mediums for his creative outwork. I think like Caroline is like a really good example of, you know, it's, is it a graphic novel? Is it an illustrated book for children? What, like what genre does that sit in? Yeah. And then I think, I think Mirror Mask is a movie where he just, it was totally conceived as a movie, and he wrote the screenplay. I also, interesting fact, know that he wrote the screenplay for the CGI Beowulf movie starring, uh, fuck, man, what's his name? He's in Sexy Beast. Ray something. Ray Winstone. Ray Winstone. Where they CGI'd Ray Winstone to be buff. <laughs> Neil Gaiman wrote that. And you can kind of, once you pay attention to it and you see the way he's kind of playing with the structure of that story and the mythology around it, it starts to become clearer that it's Neil Gaiman, but you kind of got to get through all the layers of creepy CGI before you can. I don't know why he made that. Why didn't he just write a screenplay for Grendel? Like, why did he make that Beowulf? But it's interesting because right around the time, this is when he starts to get into Norse mythology and Viking culture. And he starts to sort, and you can see that influence coming out in his work. But yeah, you can also see that in Sandman itself. There's Loki and Thor show up as characters in Sandman. Like, it's clearly those concepts and ideas are something that he's been fascinated with for a while. Well, let's not get too distracted, even though it's kind of linear. We're talking about Neil Gaiman. Let's start talking about Sandman. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing sort of about Neil Gaiman, which which will lead us into Sandman, is um, have you ever read The Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut? No. So that's an example I use a lot that I'll, I'll often call a early work of an artist their Sirens of Titan because I read that after I'd read a ton of other Kurt Vonnegut stuff. And it's Sirens of Titan is a much earlier work that contains sort of prototypes of a lot of the ideas that he would flesh out into full novels later. Oh, I can't think of an example. I was talking about this recently. I called something somebody Sirens of Titan. But I think Sandman is sort of Game and Sirens of Titan. There's so many ideas strewn throughout Sandman that you would later see expanded into full works. Like in the next volume, I think, is Doll's House, right? Right, yes. That feels, that's got a lot of stuff that feels very Coraline. All the stuff with the gods coming in and out of the dreaming is like very much American gods. And then the actual just full on mythology part feels a lot like his Norse mythology book. And there's stuff with, like, the Necropolis, which feels like the Graveyard Book. Like, it's just full of these little ideas that he would later expand into their own pieces. And so it's a really, if you're a fan of Neil Gaiman's prose work, I think you have to read Sandman. Because it it's like this Rosetta Stone that suddenly makes all these other things fall into place and into context that you didn't have for them before. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like... There's a Neil Gaiman universe, and no matter which part you're involved in, you can learn more about the universe that he creates. Because, the, I mean, there are crossover characters, like you said, there are themes that go through the whole 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you read like American Gods and you'll see some of the things, if you read Oceans, Ocean at the End of the Lane, then you'll definitely see some things that are, you know, ideas that didn't make it into Sandman. We'll talk about it later, but I 100% believe that Ocean at the End of the Lane is an unofficial Sandman spinoff. There are characters in Ocean in the Lane, which I, it's not even, I don't even feel like it's a theory or a headcanon or whatever. I just 100% believe they're the same characters that show up in Sandman. And I, I think you're right. I think a lot of people, it has definitely has that feel, that aesthetic. So the first story starts, it's almost like, I think it's almost like a Lovecraftian story. There's this sort of occult group and they're trying to capture a god. They're trying to capture death and they accidentally capture Morpheus. And because they're so afraid that revenge will be upon thrust upon them that they keep him captive for what almost a hundred years yeah this first issue is feels like a very self-contained sort of horror story almost like you said it definitely is sort of a british style horror story yeah it's interesting there's a lot of horror stuff in in sandman a lot of the characters that show up in it are old characters from old dc horror comics like we'll get to it later but like when we start meeting the dreams a whole mess of them are these repurposed horror comics characters. And th- this story, more than any other one in this volume, has the structure of like an old EC, ho- EC Comics horror story. It's got the ironic punishment at the end. It's got people messing with stuff beyond their understanding. The creepy cat. It's got a... Is there a creepy cat in this first story? Yeah. He showed, He manifests as a cat. Oh, he does? Yes. To sc- I mean, Neil Gaiman likes cats, and that's one yeah. of the reasons why a lot of people like him. But he does manifest as a cat to scare, I think it's one of Burgess's relations, his son or his grandson. It's his son. His, his son's son. the... His son ends up taking over for him. Yeah, so Roderick Burgess, the the guy who captures Dream, expecting it to be death, is, like, I think very clearly supposed to be a riff on Aleister Crowley. I think so. He's got, like, a bunch of the nicknames, like, Crowley does, and he's, like, a sensation in the newspapers in the same way Crowley is. And it's kind of like, what if, what if something, what if Crowley actually did capture, like, a demon or something, but it wasn't what he thought it was going to be? And, and I, th- I think you're right. One of the most stunning images from the first issue is that sort of full-page image of when they capture Dream in the in this circle, in their magical circle, that almost looks like an alchemical symbol. And then you see him laying there, and he has his helm, and he has his tools, and you can see his coat is ragged. When they first capture him, and he's like at full power. And it's sort of like, that sort of is like a magical symbol, and people... You know, the people all around them and they think they have captured death and whatever reason why they want death, they... Well, immortality. Yeah, and then they see what they got and they realize, like, this is not who we thought it was. And it takes them a while to figure out who it is. Because in the story, they do research for maybe 30 years and finally someone has this really crude drawing of what Dream looks like when he's wearing his mask, which Mm. looks like a gas mask. Yeah, so there's lots of like connections to one one of the th- one of the ways they connect him to the broader DC universe is it's it's brought up very briefly in this issue that 
the the Golden Age Sandman character, who was just kind of like a pulp detective character who wore a gas mask and used a gun that shot sleeping gas. Right. Is like the universe's attempt to try and create a new dream. Yeah, that's the image is beautiful. We're looking at it right now. <laughs> it's the title page of the issue. We'll, we'll tweet it out. I You brought up it looking like an alchemical symbol. But what I get from this, and actually a lot of the art in this volume at least, is a very like Art Nouveau vibe. Oh, definitely. There's a lot of that sort of like filigree. And he, Sam Keith in particular uses a lot of like non-standard panel designs. Lots of like round panels that are like pushing the other panels into interesting shapes a lot of like inset panels where it'll be like you know a panel of something happening and then inside of it will be another smaller panel just of like a faces reaction the way that he plays with comic book storytelling in this is really great i mean it's not like totally unique you can see other comics where people do stuff like this but i think he really embraces the fluidity of Dream as a character who's, you know, kind of constantly shifting form and appearance. And the comic is constantly shifting shape. And, like, the panels morph and flow in a way that, like, reflects the action and reflects a Dream's, like, mood and attitude. The one that I'm thinking of specifically, this is jumping way ahead, but there's a part later on in the story where Dream picks up his uh, amulet, his ruby, and it, like, attacks him. And the page is set up so that there's this one really big round panel of him reacting to the assault by the ruby. And then that pushes all the other panels down. And the rest of those panels are him, like, falling unconscious. And the, just the shape of the page, the way it reflects the action that's happening and the way Dream is feeling and reacting to it, I think it's just genuinely brilliant. Yeah, I think that sort of non-uniform panel layout is sort of off it's off footing the reader i mean you're feeling just as disoriented and confused as morpheus is when he finally gets free of the chamber that he's been held in for a hundred years and i think you can sort of see that when he gets out of the chamber and he goes back to his dream world and he's sort of weakened and confused and i think these sort of irregular panels and this sort of you have to kind of figure out how to read that page. And as you're figuring out how to read the page, you're looking at the images of Dream and how he's sort of diminished. He doesn't have his tools. He doesn't have his full power. And you kind of feel the same way. You're kind of like just as disoriented as he is. And then what happens is he gets he gets back to his world and he meets Cain and Abel. Yeah, so going back to the first issue... Um, well, the way that that ends is he does a, something pretty cruel to Alex Burgess, Roderick Burgess's son. He gives him this this curse of ceaseless waking, where it's like, you know, that, that trope in fiction where a character has a nightmare and they wake up and they're like, ooh, that was a rough one. And then, like, their significant other rises from the bed and they have a skeleton face and they realize they're in another nightmare and they wake up again. It's just that for eternity. This guy's just falling through layers and layers of nested nightmares for forever. And it's this, it's terrifying. It's like a genuine, like, little bit of psychological terror where it's like messing with your sense of reality. Because you kind of, like, could just be in that in your everyday life. Because we're always, we're going to sleep and waking up. We're in a cycle of waking up. So it's like, 
it plays into that. But it's also just an incredibly cruel act to a guy who who wronged him. But most of most of Burgess's crime really just boils down to him being unable to free himself from the chains of his father's actions. But I think that's a fitting revenge. First of all, you always have to have revenge in a British horror story, and then something so you have to pay for whatever you've done there's always that kind of crime and kind of punishment going on but i think it's also a fitting sort of punishment for him because within the story there's all these little side stories about people who are affected by the fact that dream is no longer there so there are people who are asleep for a hundred years or people who can't dream or feel like they have this sense of loss because something is missing from their life and it's the connection to the dream world that is severed by the Burgess's family act of capturing dream and keeping him for that long period of time. Sure. But the main reason I wanted to call this up is because I think there's a, a very clear character arc for dream that starts here with this action of him punishing Burgess and ends with his reaction to John D in sort of the the end of the more than rubies arc. I think it even goes kind of further than that to the last story where he meets death because she convinces him in the final issue to stop being so mopey. Mopey. Yeah, that's exactly it, but she she shows him by showing him the work that she has to do that there is a value to what he does and he needs to get back to the work that he's supposed to be doing. That's fair enough. I do kind of see that last issue and the realization he comes in that as being related to but separate from this arc because he starts off, you know, being incredibly vengeful and then by the end of More Than Rubies, he doesn't do anything in retaliation to John D. He just sort of lets him go back to the asylum and then I think... What's going on in The Sound of Her Wings is he's realized, like, he's gone through this arc and given up this desire for revenge and made himself whole again. And now he's directionless. And what death does is gives him direction again. Right. But I think that's true. But I think throughout the entire series, Morpheus is always about to lay down the law and then he tempers his anger. Because I feel like deep down he has compassion and empathy towards the humans that he interacts with. I mean, he could be ruthless to John D for what he does to him, but he has a little compassion and he gives him back what he really wants is to go back to Arkham. Yeah, I definitely think we see a lot of this comic is about Dream becoming more human. And that becomes more obvious as we go along. I'm not going to spoil the ultimate end of the series. But I think that does, you know, it becomes a big deal. His his humanity and his embracing of humanity. And we get glimpses of his past in this. When he goes to hell, he encounters someone from his past who he had punished pretty harshly and condemned to hell for eternity. And at that point, he's like, I cannot forgive you. Or I have not forgiven you yet. And then by the end, a few issues later... John D, who has just recently wronged him, he kind of forgives immediately. Well, also I think too in the in the issue with John Constantine, where he gets his sand back, he also is compassionate when his initial reaction is to be harsh and cruel. Yeah, I th- I think the thing is when he's like when he meets 
uh, Anada, is that her name? I can't remember the name of, of the woman. And he says, I cannot forgive you yet. It's framed initially as like, I have not reached the point where I am, you know, I've processed your actions enough to be able to forgive you. Whereas what I think it really is, is he's not at a place where he can forgive anyone yet. Right. And, and I- then in the process of defeating D and reclaiming the part of himself that he invested in the ruby and also, you know, interacting with humanity before that with like John Constantine, he learns the ability to forgive, which will then become important later. I think so. And then that's pretty much what happens in the second issue is he decides he needs to get back his tools, which is the helm that he wears, his ruby necklace and his bag of sand. Yeah. Those and, are the, the symbols of his office. They're these tools that he's invested some portion of his power right. in. And the second issue is great because it does so much heavy lifting when it comes to the world building and mythology. Because we, right? The second issue is when he goes back to the dreaming, right? Yes. So we meet, we meet the dreams. We meet Cain and Abel. We meet Lucian. We see a glimpse of the Raven Woman. And those are all characters that were hosts of old DC horror comics. They basically filled that Crypt Keeper role of introducing the stories. Uh, Cain and Abel were, you know, in House of Mystery and House of Secrets. Eve kind of jumped around books. Uh, Lucian wasn't in one for very long. But the interesting thing that this does is Lucian's old comic, he was like a uh, librarian. And he was like introducing the stories from the library. This sort of retcons it so that the castle he's in is dreams castle and it is dreams library that he's introducing us to and then also in this issue he summons the hecate the triple goddess whatever you want to call them and they appear in the form of the witches that introduced the witching hour comic from dc and i think also that is a 100 percent clear reference to shakespeare and macbeth and i think that's the start you see a lot of Shakespearean references throughout the series. It's a very deliberate reference to... It's like a explicit reference to Macbeth because he actually does, as they're leaving, call them the Weird Sisters. Right, exactly. And they're this representation of the, you know, the trope or the archetype, you know, of the triple goddess, the mother, the maiden, and the crone. They're identified with the fates and all these other figures. And they're the start of this idea that we'll see throughout Sandman and then especially explored in American gods of these recurring archetypes and people embodying these archetypes and becoming them. We see later on in this story, at least once other unrelated characters grouping together and then fulfilling the role of that triple goddess. I think too, in the second issue is the first time that you get to see, you get to see in the first issue, you see Morpheus and he's in his traditional costume or some manifestation of his costume. But then as the series moves on, his his clothing becomes sort of fluid and he becomes, he sort of dresses in different ways. And then you realize the sort of fluidity of the depiction of the Sandman throughout the series. Because, I mean, even physically, he changes the way that he looks. Yeah. So in the first episode, first issue you see him and you think okay this is what he's going to look like he's going to have his cape and his helm and and then as the series moves on he starts to transform himself and the sort of aesthetic of what his uniform almost is i think they do a nice thing with the visual with his look throughout this volume alone because like you said we do see him in the full 
outfit. And he looks like this very threatening otherworldly figure with the flowing cape and this weird mask. And then he's stripped of all those things. And we see him diminished. And he slowly gets them back. And we see him, like, building back up this regalia. And then when the ruby is destroyed and he regains a part of himself and he starts to learn to become more human, rather than finally appearing in his full regalia and majesty, at his most powerful, he appears in a gray t-shirt and black pants. In just like a human casual outfit. And also I think that's when he looks his most Robert Smith-y. Well, I think you said something that I thought was really... I, I thought it was funny, but it was also very sort of insightful about the aesthetic of Dream. Do you remember what you said? No, not, not at all. You said something about when he's at his worst, he looks like Robert Smith. And when he's at his best, he looks like Neil Gaiman. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's kind of telling, like, like the two sort of different ends of his humanity where he's always depicted with his black hair and mm. his sort of raggedy kind of like punk style you know you kind of imagine him looking at like a certain aesthetic which is very late 80s early 90s kind of look yeah he, he there's a moment in this uh when he meets john constantine where he puts on a trench coat where he, that's just straight up a drawing of neil gaiman I think so. Like, it's just, he's just Neil Gaiman, but you gave him chocolate skin. But I, that is my favorite panel from the whole entire first volume is when he puts on, when he put, when he's supposed to put on more human clothes and he just wears John Constantine's trench coat, which is John Constantine's iconic symbol. Yes, exactly. So he takes that, but his is blue and John's is yellow, which I think is the best thing. That, and then he even makes a reference to the Hulk. No, that? it's Swamp Thing. Oh, Swamp Thing. John Constantine originally appeared as a character in Swamp Thing. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's who he's talking about when he says, oh, I should introduce you to the green guy. You'll like him. He also doesn't have a sense of humor. But that's another cool thing with his visual where the, when he's like in in that third issue... When he's like, oh, I need to look more human. So he just copies the outfit of the nearest human. And then in the later, you know, by the end of that volume, he's just, he's decided on his own outfit that's human, which is this this gray t-shirt look. And he's not copying anyone. That's just, he's just develops his own style. I think for the, when we get to the third issue, which is Dream a Little, Dream of Me, I think that's in my mind when it starts to hit the stride of like, the clever, sophisticated writing of Neil Gaiman. Like he set up the premise and now it's kind of like, now you see some of the, you see a little bit of whimsy, like when John Constantine's going through his day and the Sandman is coming and you see it like different references to different music that when he goes to, into the diner, he hears this sort of 50s pop music about dreaming and then he's in the car so there's all these references to music and in, in the music about dreams so that you know the Sandman is coming and sort of John Constantine is kind of like he always is sort of a little bit oblivious to the supernatural things that are happening to him even though he claims to be you know like an exorcist and very in tune with the supernatural world he's always sort of a little bit befuddled and then when he, it finally occurs to him he's kind of like a shock that you know like a demon is chasing him or here comes morpheus to help him get his sand back this is actually one of my favorite john constantine stories because he is forced out of the john constantine role because so many of those comics 
he appears as an outsider who knows more than everyone else. He's knowledgeable about magic, and he kind of drags some secondary character, every man, along with them, out of their depth through this story, and then he wraps things up and disappears. And in this story, Dream is playing the Constantine role, and Constantine is the everyman who doesn't really know what's going on and has to have this more powerful, more knowledgeable character help him solve his problems. I think the other thing that's really interesting about this third issue, which I guess we're just talking about now... Oh, the, the, the other notable thing about the second issue is it basically ends with the Hecate telling him that... Um, where his... Where his tools. stuff is. Yeah. His helmet is in hell, his amulet is in the possession of the Justice League, and the last person that had his pouch was John Constantine. And so he decides to see John Constantine first because he's not powerful enough to go to hell, and he doesn't know enough about the superheroes to deal with them yet. But I think what's one of the things that's really cool about this third issue is... So that I said that first issue is structured like a classic horror comic. So is this one, except the ending is completely different. It doesn't have that moment of, like, ironic punishment and revenge. It has a moment of forgiveness and mercy, which ties into this character arc we see through the rest of the volume, where they use that setup of, like, the horror comic, which you would normally go somewhere really dark at the end, go somewhere much more hopeful. He gives... The you know I can't remember her name, but the lady who has the pouch of sand, a merciful, peaceful death, and he gives John Constantine, you know, a night of restful sleep that he hasn't had, you know, since his origin story, basically. Yeah, I think when I think about John Constantine, in my mind, I always think of him as a kind of a kind of like a Fox Mulder type of character. He's kind of, he's aware of a lot of things in the supernatural world, but he's not necessarily really good at dealing with them. And I think like, like, first of all, he's not aware given all these hints from the universe that the Sandman is coming for him. Yeah. And then also he accidentally buys one of the most powerful items in the supernatural world, but he doesn't know what to do with it. So he just puts it away in some kind of like, chest of drawers and forgets about it like he's never really he's not consistently active enough to get any kind of like results from any of his investigations or anything he's kind of like a bumbling detective well that actually so my interpretation of john constantine he's great i'm gonna just say this right now john constantine is one of my favorite characters in all of fiction i fucking love john constantine and i think the thing with him is that he is a guy He's way more Spider-Man than he wants you to think he is. He's bound by duty and regret. And like, yeah, he's not the best magician in the world, but he kind of feels like he has to be because somebody has to be there standing in the gap to protect people from these magical forces they don't understand. And he may not understand them perfectly, but he has to do it. And part of that is like he has to do that to make up for the mistakes he made in the past. And I think the thing with him acquiring the pouch is like, I there's this conversation that he he relates i think to dream where he's like oh she kept asking me like why would you have a magic item if you're not going to use it and he never provides his answer but i think the answer is that's why to have it so that people don't use it but he doesn't fully know how to protect it and he ends up losing it anyway because he's a fuck up who constantly has to be doing things he regrets to continue to power him to go through the rest of his stories i always think about john constantine I always think about Harry Dresden mm. as if Jim Butcher had said had read John Constantine and said, maybe what if John was good at his job? Yeah. And like, what if he like actually f- 
followed through and and did some stuff that really like what if he wasn't a bumbling detective or a fox Mulder that got knocked out half the time oh and, yeah like he's... this john constantine is that way i mean he obviously part of the problems that he has they're self-created because he didn't do just even the minimal amount of work that he could do and I think that's why he feels so guilty about what happens to his former girlfriend mm-hmm. because he realizes that he didn't protect that. He didn't understand completely. John Constantine never fully finishes his research. He sort of half asses it. He doesn't listen to people who give him like direct warnings. And I think he sets up problems like this one. And I think you can sort of sense that the Sandman is kind of like, oh, John, you're always fucking up. Like, why don't you just finish something? And I, yeah, it's almost like a buddy story. Like when the two of them get together and they're going to find his pouch, it's almost like some kind of like buddy comedy. That oh, happens. it's absolutely like a buddy story. They're, and their dynamic is great. I really like them interacting because it's like an, it's a kind of a thing you don't really get in the other sort of Constantine or Hellblazer stories where Dream is a much more powerful supernatural figure, but he's not like threatening he's not like a demon he's just like a force of the universe and so it's an interesting way to put somebody who regularly fights like literal satan out of his depth by putting him up against like a neutral powerful figure but he's like kind of above it all and it's just like you know shaking his head at the shit that john constantine is doing but i think it's kind of like once they get together and once they both put on the same trench coats it's kind of like this comedy like let's solve a mystery you know they get yeah. to solve this mystery and i think that sort of shows the sort of the comedic elements that you can find in a lot of neil gaiman's writing he has this sort of like good omens he has this way of putting two characters together that kind of would rub each other the wrong way but like make for an interesting story well speaking of good omens we're gonna get. I think next we're gonna get into the story about actual demons, which I think, in the same way that I was like, oh, this is the Sirens of Titan. This has ideas. I think some of the portrayal of demons in this ends up leaking into Good Omens. So in the next episode, which is called A Hope in Hell, the next issue I should say is called A Hope in Hell. This is when Morpheus goes down to hell to get his helm back. Yeah, this issue is interesting. I. Had Before we had started having this conversation, I, in my mind I was like, eh, this is the weakest and least necessary one of the bunch. Which is, like, maybe still true, but I think that, like, it's a more important part of Dream's character arc than I initially thought. Because I think at the end, the, the, the source of the title is that at the end of the issue, uh, all of the hosts of Hell have surrounded Morpheus and they're like, why should we let you leave? And his response is... You know, what good is hell if the people inside can't be dreaming of heaven? And I think that that, that's initially presented as him just kind of like stating a fact about himself and hell. But I think he comes to the realization as he's saying it. I think this is a part of Dream starting to learn, you know, what more roles he could fill besides just being like the great and terrible king of dreams. He's this, he can be, be this symbol of hope and potential which i think is something he fully realizes in that last issue where he watches death be this kind of like gentle loving figure rather than just like the ultimate nullification of existence i thought you would like it 
for one simple reason, and that's because it has a Jack Kirby connection. Oh, it's well, there's two reasons then, because that's not what I thought you were going to say. Yeah, there's a Jack Kirby connection in that he meets Etrigan, the demon, which I said that Swamp Thing, Saga of the Swamp Thing, was kind of the prototype for the Vertigo book. But I think the the ancestor of the Vertigo book is Jack Kirby's demon, which was Kirby tasked to do a horror comic, but he's Jack Kirby, so he couldn't do it. And he made this kind of weird fantasy superhero story about a super jacked demon bound to an immortal cursed knight and full of this like weird, dense, rich art. And I think a lot of that DNA from that book ends up in books like Sandman and Swamp Thing and Shade the Changing Man. But I thought the thing you were going to say is that Lucifer is drawn to look exactly like David Bowie. Oh, 100%. This this issue has like, it's the meaning of my two, it's my favorite comic book artist and my favorite musician together in one issue. I think there's a lot of Bowie references, especially as the series continues, because when you get to the part with the Corinthian and things like that, there's obviously other Bowie influenced yeah, I, I think on. it's safe to say that Neil Gaiman probably really likes David Bowie. I mean, Dream feels very Bowie in and of itself, where I'm like, if they made a Sandman movie in, like, the 80s somehow, uh, and Bowie wasn't playing Lucifer, I could easily see him playing Dream. Definitely. But oh. I have a question for you about uh, Lucifer's dialogue. When I read his dialogue in this, not so much when he shows up, like, later in his own book or whatever... But in this issue, at least, I always read it in like he's singing it in a David Bowie voice. I think it reminds me a little bit of like romantic poetry. Oh, he's it's absolutely definitely like kind of flowery and kind of flouncy for some reason. I kind of imagine him reading like in a British accent, like kind of like overly dramatically, like speaking in a you know kind of like a new romantic late eighties kind of Duran Duran style. Well, I think this is absolutely supposed to be, like, the Lucifer of Paradise Lost. Yeah. Like, this is, is the Lucifer as romantic, tragic hero in a way. Not that he does a lot of that, but there's, like, just from the way he's drawn and the way he speaks, like, there's clearly something kind of haunted about him. This issue also contains another big Swamp Thing reference, which is when Dream shows up and he's like, oh, there, Lucifer's not the only king of hell. There, it's a triumvirate now. Right. That... And Lucifer's like, oh, we had a civil war after the Great Darkness did a thing. That's a Sandman, uh, Swamp Thing story. We see that happen in the Swamp Thing issues that tie into Infinite Crisis on Infinite Earths. And that's actually, that story is also what introduces John Constantine. I think, I mean, I think the depiction of Lucifer looking like David Bowie is also a reference to the angelic nature of... Lucifer. I think it's very clear. You see that like in the TV series and in the Lucifer comics, wherever he appears. It's very clear and they kind of really push that point apart that he was a former angel. And I think this sort of beautiful, blonde, curly, kind of angelic looking Lucifer is a way to reinforce like he's not a demon himself. He's a former angel and now he lives in hell and this is his job in a way to sort of manage this you know underworld he's not like the little red imp 
devil that you see like on a box of matches. Yeah, I think it very not subtly, but I think in a very non-verbal way. It get, his design gives us a lot of insight into his character because all the other demons are horrifying nightmares. Like the other two lords of hell are Beelzebub who's a giant fly and Azazel who's a mass of eyes and mouths and horns and Lucifer is the only one that's hung on to this angelic aspect who still retains some of this like divine beauty or whatever. And I think we see that later on as he's like the most sort of like listless and regretful of the demons. Like there's, you know, in spoiler alert for later in Sandman, like he comes back in a very important and big way in Season of the Mist, which then sets up the Lucifer comic that the TV show is adapted from. Right. But that Lucifer is not, he is like a a British dandy, you know, he has dark hair and he wears a very expensive suits and things like that. He's not like this Lucifer. But that's what he's like. I think when we see Lucifer later in this, he starts to become that kind of character. And then he's fully that in the comic. They just cast a guy who wasn't blonde in the show. Um, But let's get to the main part of the story where to get back his helm, he has to have a showdown with the demon. Karanzan. That is holding his helm and the, this showdown takes the place of some kind of comedy club showdown. It's like a strange kind of uh, competitive improv. It's like it's called like the game of creation or something like that. And what it ends up being is they take turns like describing and embodying these different concepts and creatures. So it starts with like I'm a snake, I'm an ox, I'm the hunter. And then Dream ends up winning by being like, or no, Dream says he's the universe or something like that. And then Karanzan is like, I'm destruction, you're destroyed. What are you now? And then Dream says, I'm hope. And we see, you know, his thought process along with his decisions. And that's clearly like, that was not his plan the entire time. He didn't know what he was doing when he goes into it. And that's why I'm like, when he says that thing at the end about dreaming of heaven, he's come to this realization across this story. Like, Karanzan's game teaches him that he can be hope. I understand that, but I was very distracted by the fact that, for some reason, Morpheus had to wear Terry Pratchett's hat while he was in this epic battle. (laughs) I didn't even put that together. He absolutely wears Terry Pratchett's hat. And it's kind of distracting, because it's kind of like, why is he wearing that hat? (laughs) Because it's like, it's got like a sleazy club feel and i think he's supposed to be he's got wearing kind of like a noir outfit i think um i don't know it's it's strange but i think that thing like these demons as like sleazy weirdos and like crusty art punks ends up coming to like ends up being a big part of good omens like these feel like the demons in good omens like i i think there there's a fair amount of common ground between Karanzan and Crowley. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's almost sort of another comedic element of the series. Is like, you go to hell and you're in an 80s comedy improv club. And you're wearing a fedora and you're battle. You're having almost like a poetry battle with a demon to get your helm back. Yeah, and all the demons show up. It's like, in all of hell, they don't have anything better to do than to watch this weird improv poetry contest. 
Isn't that what everyone did in the 80s, though? Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like, I mean, that's my understanding. Improv Club had, like, a brick wall with some kind of really lame graffiti on it. And you had your improv. You wore your fedora. You got your home back. And then you headed out to... Yeah, then they threaten to kill you. And then you give them a speech and you can leave. Yeah. That's definitely one of the weirder... This is also... I want to do another shout-out to Sam Keith's art in this. I think this issue is one of the ones that's uh, where he works with Malcolm Jones. Uh, his designs of the demons are great. So, so like, there's a full-page spread of, like, all the demons together. And it's just, like, packed to the gills with all these weird designs and bodies. Like, Karanzan is one of the least weird designs and he's still like a purple monster with two mouths and wraparound shades yes the wraparound shades are to die for i thought it was interesting especially oh, in snm gear before he goes to the to the to the club to do his improv he's full-on wearing like an snm harness exactly but the first time i read the series i read the print copies we read we read it a, a couple years ago we read it together yeah and we went through this time, when I read the volume, I had a digital copy of it. Mm -hmm. And I thought one of the really nice things about reading the digital copy was you were able to zoom and you were able to sort of really look at all the details in the panels, which I thought was really nice. So this time around, I spent more time looking at the sort of visual component of the stories. And I thought that sort of enriched it a little bit more because I saw more details, especially in this in this issue with all the different complex, you know, large images of the different demons and things like that. And I, I really thought that was, I guess it added another layer. It's almost like listening to the audio book, like being able to like zoom in and then look at all the details, but then also being able to look at each panel by itself kind of like gave, gave like an additional experience of like the visual for this. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of comics people that I follow who don't like digital comics. And I don't feel that way. I'm very, you know, pro digital comics and ebooks and audiobooks. But I definitely think there's, you get different things. There's a lot of texture to reading the print version. Like with the way that this art looks, I think like the colors are much more brighter on the digital version. And I think the more muted colors on the like, the, you know, on the page adds a lot of like atmosphere to it but i definitely think that that ability to to zoom in and really like study the art is a great advantage to reading it digitally also you can just take it fucking anywhere yeah and i think you know like the i was reading this in hoopla and one of the things you can do in hoopla is you can tap on it and you can look at each individual panel which i think helps you understand because sometimes you know with the different panel shapes and things like that it's hard to sort of figure out how you're supposed to read the panels and in which order. And I think this sort of helped me understand the narrative flow that was, you know, the graphics and what what you were supposed to be reading and in what order. Because, I mean, I don't read a lot of comics. So when I was reading it, I was kind of, I'm trying to read it in a traditional way of reading each panel. And then when you have circular panels or like you said, inset panels, you kind of have to learn how to read it in the way that like makes the, you know it's easy for you to understand the plot that's going on so i thought that was nice yeah that's not a thing i tend to think about a lot because i've been reading you know i'm 26 i'm reading comics for 20 years like i've, pro I've probably 
I, I think there are probably less days in my life where I haven't read comics than days when I have. I, I would say, like, if you made a pie chart of my life, days where Nate read comics is, like, a huge segment, and maybe days where Nate didn't read comics is a little sliver. And so, like, I've internalized so much of that storytelling that, like, I see a weird page layout, I don't even sweat it. I just, like, I can intuit, like, how the story flows. And so it's always, like, takes me a second to, like, when somebody says to me, like, oh, I don't know how to read this page... Unless it's a, not a really bad page, it always takes me a second to be like, oh, yeah, okay, that's not something that somebody would just immediately understand a lot of the time. It's almost like learning how to read again. Yeah. And I think this is, I mean, it's an important skill because there's so many more graphic novels and and comic books and, and quality stories that are in a visual format that it's worth learning how to do that. Yeah, I think that's a thing that people take for granted is that, like, comics aren't just a story told with images. They do have their own visual language that is unique to comics that doesn't exist in something like a movie, which is also a visual medium, that you do kind of, I mean, a really great masterful comic will just work automatically for everyone. But I think there is a lot of stuff where you do kind of need to be able to read comics to read them. And I don't think that's necessarily, like, something wrong with this. But I wouldn't blame anybody for, like, opening up a page of this Sam Keith art and being like, where the fuck do I start with this? This looks like a stained glass window. Where Where is the story in this? Yeah, and I think, I mean, it, it's definitely a learning curve, but I think it's worth it. But let's get back to talking about this next issue. Oh, yeah, this is, is where it gets this real. Is, this is jam-packed. I mean, there is a lot going on visually, plot point-wise, aesthetically. I mean, there's... Yeah, so this is where he goes to get his ruby. This is the last major arc of this volume. And so the character that has had his ruby is a pre-existing DC villain. It's a Justice League villain named Dr. Destiny, who actually appears in issue 5 of Justice League. So he's a really early Justice League villain. And his whole deal is, like, dreams and fear and stuff. He's got this machine called the Materiopticon that makes your, your nightmares physical and the Justice League have to fight them. That was, like, a big... Uh, that happened a bunch in early Justice League because you it's a real challenge writing all these really powerful heroes and nobody's stronger than their own fears. So that's an easy way to create a threat to Superman or Batman or whatever is to just have the the thing that they think is the biggest threat to them in the world just pop into existence and start wrestling with them. I think it's also important to note that Dr. Destiny is also known as John D. I think that comes from this. I, I No, I mean in this story. Yeah, yeah. So there, he, he uses the names interchangeably. So this, they're not two characters, John D. and Dr. Destiny. They're the same character. Yeah. I think that John D. name originates from this, but I wouldn't be surprised if it goes back to the original comics because... Dr. Destiny was created by Gardner Fox, um, but he liked to pack in a lot of references to sort of, like, obscure and esoteric history and mythology. Like, I think two or three issues before Dr. Destiny shows up, the Justice League is fighting Simon Magus, you know, like, from the Bible and Gnostic mysticism. So I wouldn't be surprised if he named the character John D. but I think that's a Neil Gaiman thing. But I was going to say, this is, like, another hallmark of the early... Vertigo books or the the proto Vertigo books is this reinvention of a 
you know, a goofier villain into something bigger, more tragic, darker, more threatening. And even the thing where they stop referring to them as their villain name and start referring to them as their real name. The sort of prototype for this is in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, where he takes the Floronic Man and starts referring to him by his last name, Woodrew, and makes him into this, like, world-threatening villain who tries to kill Swamp Thing with a chainsaw. And we see... Grant Morrison take the psycho pirate and make him into this like weird tragic figure who remembers the multiverse and is haunted by visions of worlds that were but never will be. And we see Neil Gaiman do a similar thing with making Dr. Destiny into this incredibly frightening character. Like this is some some disturbing shit happens in this story. This is definitely when it goes off the rails. I thought that the John D. reference had to do with the sort of alchemical history of being obsessed with semi-precious stones and i think like john d's uh, obsession with morpheus's ruby has to stems from his sort of persona as being an alchemist oh yeah that's absolutely the case i john d is also he did scrying right like he talked to angels which i think is another thing like this john d has this relationship with morpheus and with dreams uh, he even calls himself a hermetic philosopher at one point. It's absolutely supposed to be a reference to, you know, John Dee, the, the alchemist and occultist and advisor to the queen. Do you, I mean, I just have this quick question. Does this issue remind you of a story from Cows from the Crypt? Do you get this sort of horror story yeah. kind of... Like, the whole thing when they're in the diner and they're being manipulated mentally. And then even the part where, like, the scarecrow is sort of in the intro to the story. And then John D is in the car with the woman and then the story is sort of un- unrolling. That kind of seems very Tales from the Crypt to me. Oh, yeah. It's definitely... I definitely think both sort of halves of... Or the first two issues of this... Or I guess this arc is just two issues. Yes. Or whatever. It, it is... There's definitely a, a Tales from the Crypt classic horror story. I think this is another example of Gaiman messing with the structure of those stories. Like, this, the first issue of this, where he breaks out of Arkham and he's in the car with the woman and they're bonding and at the very end he just shoots her. It's your classic madman escapes from the asylum story, down to having the ironic twist ending where he seems like this nice man who bonds with this woman and then he's just like... Oh, he asked her if her husband actually was a mafia hitman, and when she says no, he just, boop, shoots her in the head. <laughs> uh, and also, he looks like the Crypt Keeper. But, let's talk about the Justice League. Oh, no, but I, before we get to that, I wanted to talk about some of the, the, issue five is the last issue that Sam Keith draws. I think of the entire run, which is disappointing because he's great. And his art was really great for this. But I think there's a lot, there's a lot of very good art to come. In Sandman. But I think he does an interesting thing, going back to his playing with panels, where the story kind of cuts back and forth between Dee and Dream. As Dream is looking for the ruby, and so is uh, Dr. Destiny, and they're on this path to converge. The parts with Dream use all of these weird panel shapes. And like I said, Dream's part has that page I was talking about with the big panel of him grabbing the ruby, pushing all the other ones down and making them these tighter, more claustrophobic panels. And then a lot of the times when he cuts back to John Dee, it's with these much more rigid square panels, a lot of them being sort of long and skinny 
And I think giving this more tense atmosphere, it's the way that the panels are constructed and laid out in the John Dee parts actually really reminds me of Psycho. Yeah, and I kind of, I got sort of the impression that John Dee's part was like the old comic meeting the new comic. Mm -hmm. And then at this one point they converge and then that's when the story when they meet together and that's when a story comes. And then finally, there's just one giant panel where Morpheus is holding John Dee in his hand. Yeah, that's So then it's kind of like this style of panels and then dream style panels are pushed together and becomes one giant panel and then the story starts to merge together. Yeah, well, I think some of that, the stuff that Keith was doing with the, the panels, I think once Dee takes over... And that kind of becomes its own thing. Also, it becomes a different artist for those last two issues. He's still very good. But he's doing something, I think, quite different from the more kind of exaggerated, fluid, almost cartoony style. There's something very, like, Mad Magazine about Keith's style, which is really interesting as presented in this, like, moody, dark fantasy horror story. Yeah, I kind of felt like this was, like, the episode that, like... As I mean, it, there was a lot of adult things going on, especially the 24 hours with the people in the diner. Like, that's very intense. But I kind of got this impression that you would want to sort of get under your blanket and, like, binge read this issue because it was just so packed with, like, visual and just kind of, like, like you know, like, you would just devour it in, like, a quick way because you were just so excited to page through the content to see what was happening. That is absolutely exactly what happened. So as we were preparing for this, I was reading like one issue a day. And then I hit uh, Passengers, issue five, the first part of the the John D. arc. And I read that entire thing sitting in the dark in my room late at night because I just couldn't stop. Like it is like it really just like pulls you in and pulls you along because. I think once you get to this, to Passengers and you finish it, you're like, okay, I'm hooked. No matter what happens for the rest of the series, I'm going to read it. Because at this point, when you see, you know, when what happens in this episode and how everything comes together, you are 100% committed and in love with Salmon and you will continue to read it no matter what wacky shit happens. And wacky shit does happen. You're going to be there because this this issue made you fall in love with this entire series. I mean, it is the most powerful issue in this whole entire first collection well so like what i was saying about um this story being another passengers being another example of gaiman uh messing with the classic horror comic structure is that this you know in the same way that the john constant story instead of ending with the ironic punishment ends with an act of mercy this one instead of ending with an ironic punishment for the villain he wins john d defeats you know, he gets the ruby. Dream is diminished and defeated. And you're like, well, what happens next now? What what happens at the end of the horror story when the monster defeats the cosmic force that was coming to punish him? But I think Morpheus also wins in a way because he's set free of the dependence on the ruby. But I mean, that doesn't happen until the end of this story. I'm just talking about like the, the end of issue five is like John D triumphant what is he gonna do with the the ruby now and then we get to see that in disturbing detail in 24 hours which is the next issue but i think this is when you realize that this is not 
a comic that follows a traditional format. And then you realize that this is avant-garde, this is high concept, this is sort of cutting edge, provocative storytelling and visual art. And then that's when you're hooked in. Well, yeah, I think kind of by having the Justice League there, by having the most important superhero team around, even though it's like two... It's, you know, it's not Superman and Batman. It's Mr. Miracle and Martian Manhunter there. But I think by having those characters there and ending that comic in that way, it's kind of them making a definitive statement that, like, Dream is not a superhero. He's he's not, you know, the Spectre. He's something else. And Dr. Destiny can kick his ass. Right. If you think you're getting, like, a DC comic superhero series, you're not getting that. But what about Super Casual and Martian Manhunter in his pajamas? I mean... That was great. So this version of the for I think for people that might not be familiar with comics from the time, uh, this maybe needs a little setup. So when we see in issue two the like panel of like the Hecate saying, "Oh, the Justice League has your amulet," we see the classic Justice League who defeated Doctor Destiny, and it's I think we specifically see Batman, Superman, and Green Lantern. That was not what the Justice League was at the time. For a while, the Justice League kind of had to be characters that didn't really have their own books. There's a thing where people say, oh, the Martian Manhunter is the heart of the Justice League. Because he was on the team basically from the start all the way through up until like 2010. And that's because he is the one that could never really hold down a solo book for that long. But then in-universe, the real reason became because John loves the Justice League and he's very important to the Justice League. So he's always around. Um, Wait, we have to preface by saying that Nate loves the Martian Manhunter. Oh, I lo- absolutely. Any manifestation of the Martian Manhunter, Nate will love. He's he's one of my favorite characters. I I love him so much. <laughs> uh, I love that he loves Oreos. Like that's a great little thing at the end of this. When after him and Mister Miracle help Dream, he's like, "Why don't you come to the kitchen? I got some Oreos stashed away." I think at one point you referred to him as the dad of the DC universe. Yeah, he's he, he that's absolutely the case. Yeah, he's the he's the dad of the DC <laughs> universe. Well, that's the thing. This Justice League that exists at the time is the Justice League International, which is a lot of times referred to as the comedy Justice League, which had a lot more like interpersonal humor and banter, and it was less you know a list characters. Like the most powerful and notable characters on the team were Martian Manhunter and then Batman, who isn't even on the team through the whole run. So this is like a lighter, funnier <laughs> Justice League that we see. But the other character we see is Mr. Miracle, who is another Jack Kirby character. Mm-hmm. And we get to see Sam Keith kind of do a Jack Kirby riff when we see Mr. Miracle's dreams. And uh, I, don't, I don't remember where I was going with that. But I think that's another, another example of, like, Dream reaching out to someone where he, like, expresses this hope that Scott Free will learn what his actual name is someday. And we see him, like, be kind of, like, gentle with... The Martian Manhunter, when he realizes he's the last Martian. And that's also, him encountering the Martian Manhunter sets up a thing that will be important later, which is that Dream appears to people how they would perceive him. So when he appears before Martian Manhunter, instead of being the, you know, gaunt, wild-haired goth that we've seen him as before, he appears as this, like, flaming skull because that's what the Martian god of sleep and dreams looks like. And so that's how the Martian Manhunter sees him. He kind of looks like Lou Reed in this episode, in this issue. He does kind of look like 
there's like a a, a a selection of dudes that he sometimes <laughs> looks like. So sometimes he's Robert Smith, sometimes he's Lou Reed, sometimes he's a little Bowie. A lot of times he looks like Neil Gaiman. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a bunch of different ones that he he looks like. A lot of like, you know, if if there's a famous musician who's thin and has wild hair or like specifically wild black hair, there's going to be a panel somewhere where Dream looks like them. Yep, I think so. So let's talk a little bit about the diner. Yeah, this is um, I think this intense. Is, yes. So what happens in the story is that John D gets the amulet, and his plan that he originally presented in Passengers to uh, the Scarecrow, who's great by the way. I love the, the way the Scarecrow's written in that, where he's like constantly trying to remember names for different phobias, and he he's sort of aware of the structure of comics. He's like, oh yeah, we always come back to Arkham. We have to come back to Arkham. And he kind of, Arkham, he presents Arkham as like a safe place for villains, which it is because going to Arkham is the alternative to them dying. The villains never die, but they get shuffled away to Arkham for a while. But anyway, the way that John D presents his plan to the Scarecrow in the beginning of Passengers is, I'm going to make everybody suffer and hallucinate and experience madness, and then I'm going to offer to stop it and they'll make me king of the world. And so... We get to see him do that, but from this, like, very close perspective. He starts to create this sort of worldwide madness and unrest, and then he just kind of goes into this diner and traps everybody in there. He keeps calling them flies. And he just fucks with them in increasingly fucked up ways through the course of 24 hours as he watches his plan unfold on the news. And eventually he just abandons his desires for grandeur as he embraces his new position as, like, this cruel, capricious god, which then contrasts the, you know, increasingly human, merciful, forgiving dream, where, like, the stuff that John D. does to people in 24 Hours is really not that different from what Dream does to Burgess in the first issue. Like, they're equally cruel and sadistic, he does more stuff to more people, but, like, I think by holding the ruby, D kind of becomes a representation of the dream that could have been. And Dream is forced to fully embrace his new role as the sort of more human, hopeful dream, not that he really understands that yet, as a way to counter Dr. Destiny. I think you're right, because it's sort of... It's a really, like you said, it's a tight sort of environment where he slowly reels them into like exploring their base desires and sort of taking off that like mask of human civility and then sort of getting back into like the primal nature of humanity. And the people in the diner start to act more and more animalistic as they become more and more savage and and he starts, you know, just kind of ripping away like any kind of like humanity from these people and they start to do things that are more and more extreme. Yeah, so we see when the issue starts, our narrator initially is uh, this woman named Bet, right? Yeah. She's the waitress and she writes stories about all the patrons and the people she knows. And she strips, she also strips away their humanity in the writing. She strips away all the negative aspects or at least the aspects she doesn't like and creates these unrealistic, positive stories that are comforting to her. And then D comes in and does the reverse. Like, these are 
complicated people, people that have good aspects about them and bad aspects, who do, who, you know, these two, the couple love each other, but they're also the dude cheats on her and she's got weird necrophilic fantasies. And, you know, they, they all have their positive and negative aspects. And D strips away everything else until only the cruel negative aspects exist and they just become these, you know, literally animalistic, ra- like, ravenous monsters. It's almost like an experiment that he's doing. And I think, like you said, where he originally plans to sort of manipulate the whole world, that's not as much fun to him as the sort of rats in a cage situation that he creates in the diner well i think it's explicitly supposed to be like flies in a jar like he's pulling off their wings and forcing them to fight each other literally in this enclosed environment i think he enjoys that more than this sort of plan to like create this chaos in the world and then come up with a solution and become a king but who would want yeah because why would he want to be a king who would want to be the king of a kingdom of flies? Exactly. Which is what they become to him once he has this ultimate power. Which I think is another way to show us, like, <laughs> that Dream is a good guy. Because he's so powerful that to us we would be like flies. And Dr. D is our way into viewing, like, well, what if he did see people like flies? What would he do? Probably stuff that was unspeakably cruel, like the things that D does in this diner. But I think that's why, at the end, when Morpheus has John D and he says thank you John for doing what you did because it showed me what I needed to do but also I think I'll take it over from here John D you're you're a little bit over your head and you're kind of out of your element at this point and this is not what you want you want to go back to Arkham and he sort of does him that kindness because I think John D takes on more than he originally thought he was going to take on. Because as a traditional villain, he expects to be stopped at a certain point. And then when he's not stopped, he's kind of unleashed and he's kind of like out of his element. So now I'm the villain and I won. Like, What do I do now? Yeah. Whatever the fuck I want. What I really want is like to be a limited villain in a comic book where I do something and then somebody stops me and then I go back to my safe place, which is Arkham. But what happens when I'm presented with the whole entire world? Yeah. And that's really interesting. Like, it's it's an incredible insight into, like, you know, what this kind of person would really be like. Because I think a lot of, like, real serial killers are kind of like that. Like, they want to be stopped. They want the police to catch them. They write notes to the police officers and they start to fuck up in ways. And it's like, a villain would be like that. And then it's like, what happens when that limiter is removed? something horrifying i think this is an incredible 24 hours is incredibly it's an incredible piece of comics writing i don't know it's it's very disturbing and i think that there are hella trigger warnings all over it for abuse and rape and just brutal violence and stuff like that and i it's definitely not something i would just hand to any given person but i think it's like just a really interestingly structured comic. It's a very little tight piece of really affecting but disturbing storytelling. I think it putting it in the arc of where it ends up in the series, I think is good. Because you're getting a slow amp up to violence and to sort of the adult themes that... I mean, there's a lot of... There's a lot of plot points about... Um, sexuality, gender identification, 
abuse, the issues that are societal issues that are important to talk about. And I think this is a good way to talk about them. But I think it kind of, it doesn't, the beginning of the series doesn't ever give you the impression that this is going to be like a really light fantasy supernatural comic. I mean, it's gritty from the first episode. Yeah. So. Also, I think like 24 hours is where, I think it's where it, it, it continues to be a horror comic. But I think that's where it starts to become something other than a riff on older horror comics. Even though he contains, he keeps a lot of the elements and those host characters continue to be important. This is the first issue that's straight up horror that isn't really structured like a classic horror comic at all. It's something else entirely. It's almost like a, I don't know, like an art film, like a really disturbing art film. I think, yeah, I agree. And I think at the same time in in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, things become more gritty. Yes. And there's just, there's like a trend even in literature and in art and movies to move towards a realist aesthetic. And I think this does that. Yeah, it's an interesting marrying of like, because these are kind of, these characters in the diner are characters that would show up in a realist novel. They're the kind of like small town figures with a fucked up past. They're like very Raymond Carberry uh, to call back to a previous episode. And then this comic book character comes in and upends reality and creates this horrifying nightmare surreal realm around these realist characters and pulls out their character traits and turns them into something frightful and unreal i think it's interesting that you mentioned the term trigger warning because later on one of the short story compilations the fragments and short stories that neil gaiman writes is called trigger warnings and in the introduction to trigger warnings he says someone said to him I wish you had a way to let people know when you write something that it's that you need a trigger warning. Yeah. So I think that Neil Gaiman is used to hearing that sometimes he goes too far. Not too far. Not but too he... far, but he just he becomes more and more provocative, and he has this sort of people have this impression that you know he's not you know he's a nice guy and he's so sweet and he's on Twitter and Tumblr and everybody knows him and he's kind of like. But there is this really dark side to him. There's this sort of, you know, you have to remember he's friends with Clive Barker. And yeah. You have to remember that he has roots in, like, the British horror scene. Mm-hmm. And I think this shows that he can take that edge and he can sort of be right there. I mean, this goes right to the point where you're almost at the point where you're like, okay, this is like a surrealist novel and it's kind of getting me and I can't. Yeah, that's what I was talking about, it being really well-structured. Is it just... it escalates and spirals into this incredibly dark moment and i don't think it outstays its welcome i don't think it sticks around long enough to be like exploitative or like cruel or antagonistic to the audience like i think it does build to this perfect moment and then you have the release of dream coming in to the diner and it's like okay things are okay now the the hero i guess dream has arrived And he's going to deal with this. And then the next issue, the Sound and Fury, he kind of spends almost the whole issue getting his shit completely rocked by Dr. Destiny. Right. <laughs> Until the very end when, in a very, in a very, like, mythological trickster type way, without even really intending to, he gets Dr. Destiny to defeat himself. And I think that's, like, a recurring theme in Neil Gaiman's work where 
one of the best ways to defeat something is to be clever. Yeah. And I think that sort of is what happens to John D. Like, he just gets out-clevered by Morpheus. Yeah, I mean, we see that throughout this. Like, it is only in the first issue where he wins by exerting his power. Like, the John Constantine story, he... I mean, he... I guess he wins by... But he bluffs the dreams in the John Constantine scenes. He bluffs the dreams in the John Constantine story. And he says that when he's going to hell. It's like, I can't bluff the demons like I did the dream... Excuse me. Like I did the dreams in that house. Right. That's why he has to become stronger before he goes into into hell. And that's... then he out, yeah. And then he outplays the demon in hell. And then in this final story, where it feels like he should win by exerting his power and taking down this little, you know, desiccated man with no teeth, he just kind of hangs back and lets him defeat himself. I mean, if you think that people are deserving of, like, vengeance and cruel punishment, then more than anyone in this, that we've seen so far in this comic, John D. deserves that. And he gets nothing. He gets, like, sort of forgiveness and a night of restful but dreamless sleep. In a a total inversion of what he did to Burgess. Burgess is given an unending night of restless nightmares. John D. is given just a, he's given no dreams. But I think almost Burgess chooses to be that way, and John D is, he doesn't choose to be that way, he is that way. I don't know if that's the case. I mean, John D definitely is portrayed as a character who's struggling with, you know, mental problems and obsession, but I I don't think Burgess chooses to be that way either. He's kind of forced into being what he is because of his father and the things his father did and the way he's raised. And in the, the final issue... Dream kind of like sort of expresses regret or at least uncertainty about what he did to Burgess. And I, I I don't remember I don't remember if this happens, but I think he does eventually return to Burgess and deal with what he did to him in that first issue. I think though Morpheus he thanks John D for doing what John D does because it allows him, like I said before, to free himself from the Ruby. Yeah. And then not having that restriction of having that artifact, he's able to free himself. And I think in the beginning, he's angry and he's sort of unformed. But as he goes through this quest to get his tools back, he realizes that that type of sort of biblical vengeance is not what he wants. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. He he learns... He learns about forgiveness. He learns that he can be hope. And then in the final issue, when he hangs, spends the day hanging out with Dream, he like rededicates himself to that purpose, to like fixing the things he's done and not seeking revenge anymore. And then I think the rest of the series is, is about him growing and changing as a person. I think what's interesting about the last issue where he meets his sister, I think he's sort of bummed out. He's, yeah. he's definitely bummed out, but then he's kind of like, oh, he spends time with his sister and she's dead. And she has a really horrible job, which is to take people at the moment that they're dying. And But she's surprisingly positive and optimistic and hopeful about the work she does. Yeah. Because she's not the Grim Reaper or even depicted as the Grim Reaper. Because she's kind of doing a service that needs to be done. And then he realizes what he does is also something that's required in the world. 
and he starts to look at what he wants to do as dream as the sandman from that point on yeah and death is great i mean she's one of the most recognizable uh and iconic characters from this and i think this depiction of death i mean obviously it's very influenced by terry pratchett's depiction of death as this sort of loving gentle merciful figure you know what can the harvest hope for if not the care of the reaper man you know is the quote i always think of when i think about the terry pratchett death and she has a lot of that in her as and it provides a contrast to the sort of directionless confused dream that we've seen throughout this first volume and she gives him a really harsh talking to and their relationship together is great it like they are brother and sister. It feels, despite the fact that they're the personification of dreams and death, it's a very, like, familiar human family relationship. Like, her frustration with Dream for being such, like, a mope and a sad sack and feeling so sorry for himself, like, it feels real. Obviously, I'm usually on the other side of that. I'm the Dream who's getting yelled at. But I could totally relate to that. But I also think it's sort of, a heartwarming end to the volume, but it's also sort of a cleanser from the last issue, which is so emotionally intense and like ragged. And you kind of feel like, you know, like worn out reading that. And then you sort of, and then your introduction to death is sort of like a sweet kind of nice way to meet her. And she's an interesting character and she sort of is very, I mean, She's kind of, like, resigned to what her role is, but it does not, like, destroy her. I don't even think that that's the case. Like, she, she, I don't think she carries sort of any resentment or bitterness about her role in the way that Dream does. She's, she understands the necessity of death, and she does her best to be, like, a good death. And we see her each time, even when these people, you know, we see one man who sort of just dies, he's you know, he's old and out of shape and at the end of his life. But the other deaths that we see are like cruel, sudden, kind of even stupid deaths. Like a lady, get, uh, a woman who's a stand-up comic gets electrocuted by her microphone. This like young dude gets hit by a car. A baby dies in her crib. And every time, even though these deaths to the outside observer are sudden and cruel and like um, senseless... She treats each of them, you know, so sort of gently and sweetly and just kind of guides them along. And, like, the the last death, it's played for comedy. Like, the dude gets hit by the car. He hits on her earlier in the story, and then he gets hit by a car. And she's like, shows up, and he's like, oh, I knew I'd see you again. And she's just like, I think there's something you have to see first. She's not, it's not this, like, sudden, towering, grim reaper who's like, look upon the ruination of your life. She's like a friend that's going to gently show you that you're dead and then take you to the sunless lands. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's like you said, it's an interesting take on death and the sort of persona of her. I mean, she's young, she's attractive and she's sort of very, she's very eighties, very sort of, you know. Oh yeah. The eyeliner and the black hair. I mean, she's dream is gothy, but he's more of like the, like, guy in the coffee shop reading poetry kind of gothy where she's like full on like uh Susie and the Banshees sort of like fashion goth I think the thing with her though like the 
the portrayal of death in Sandman and the portrayal of death in the Discworld and stuff is this idea of like death comes for us all. Death takes every single one of us. And why would it do that if it didn't like love us? Exactly. Like why it's so hungry to have us all. It must care about us. So that's the way they're portrayed, which I think is a, a very nice and like comforting portrayal of death. I mean, not to get too real, but like, you know, my father died when I was 16, which was not too long after the first time I read Sandman. And I think like, I, I was also around the time I was getting into Discworld and the portrayal of death in that provided me with like a lot of comfort in dealing with something so horrible. I, th- I think, and then Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman were very successful because I think that was exactly what they were trying to do. I mean, the whole arc of the Sandman is there's a sort of positive hopefulness in the whole entire series, which I think is kind of, it's kind of really great because a lot of the literature at the time is starting to turn more dark and more gritty realism. And I think there is like, he's saying, I can take you to this really dark place, but there's always a way to get back. And I think that's a really great, I mean, for, you know, to read it at the perfect time in your life, to read the exact story at the perfect time in your life and to get something that emotional from it. I think that's the power of really good literature. And I think the Sandman is right there at that point. Yeah, I absolutely. I also think it's funny, you know, cause I have siblings that you, you, your sibling would tell you like flat out that you're just being a mope and you know, you just need to like get over it because he really does need to get over it because he, you know, I mean, he went through this tragic arc where he had to, you know, he was held captive and he had to get his tools back. But now he's out and he's done and he has to move on. And there's great adventures coming along. And she sort of hints to that. And I think that's a good start. So then when you finish that issue and you're like, okay, I'm ready for the second volume. Like, what's going to happen now? Yeah, I mean, I gushed all, we both but I, maybe even me especially, gushed all over this volume. This is far from the high point of Sandman. Exactly. It gets way better from here. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think things are not going off the rails in the first issue, then you need to really buckle in because the whole series is just a roller coaster ride. Yeah, and but I think um, this last issue is kind of also... It is a great way to set up the rest of the series because... We see it start as this riff on classic horror comics and then build and build and build until it becomes this strange thing that's still got some of that horror DNA but is something else entirely. And it hits this sort of critical mass of of darkness. And then this issue, without really like stating what it is going to be, does kind of provide the message of like, okay, we we were there. We went through all that shit. Now the book is going to be something different. So hang on and, and check out what that is. I think this last issue... Real, it's really when Neil Gaiman becomes the sort of the author of Sandman, like the creator of Sandman. He leaves that sort of traditional DC universe behind. He leaves the superheroes behind. And he really starts to take up the, the parts that he hits really well, which is like the references to pop culture, the references to like mythology and sort of history and he starts talking about like Shakespeare and he starts bringing all the components of the things that Neil Gaiman is really known for into these stories 
And then as you move on and you meet the rest of the endless and you start to meet, you know, he's the adventures that happen and the sort of standalones like the episode with uh, Fiddler Green is like, you know, that those are sort of the quintessential elements of a Neil Gaiman story. And I think that's really when that when the Sandman hits its stride of when it's not trying to be a horror comic or a nod to the DC universe and it just becomes its own entity. Yeah, this this last issue is I agree with you. Yeah, this is the issue where Sandman becomes Sandman. I think as good as those first uh seven issues are, that's not the same comic that's gonna have that Shakespeare issue that wins the Pulitzer. But in this last issue where he's talking to death, this that is the same comic. That that's when it fully like embraces the tone and style that we would see, you know, drag it to such great success down the line. Yeah. And I, I think it's I mean, I hopefully people continue to keep reading along with us. We're going to do every other episode where we talk about the Sandman. So the next episode we'll do two short stories. And then after that we'll do the second volume, which is the Dollhouse. Yeah. I, I'm i so pumped to read Sandman. This will be the third time I've read Sandman. Um, and I'm really pumped to read it again. Like, I didn't think, I thought, you know, when you suggested, oh, let's do the first volume of Sandman. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I did not expect to come out of the first volume being so pumped to dive into the next one because like there's so much stuff we haven't seen yet we haven't seen the corinthian we haven't seen fiddler's green hobgaddling hasn't shown up i'm so excited to get to those and to talk about those parts again i love this comic so much i mean there's a whole arc that's almost like a love story to the tempest i mean you really yeah there's all tons of shakespeare references yeah if you if you're uh you know if you were a 16-year-old that was obsessed with literary references and uh, was convinced that you're going to be the greatest writer of all time, Sandman's kind of a perfect comic for you. It'll help you be even more annoying than you already were. I also want to mention almost like a recommendation about um, Tor.com's series that they have, Magic and Good Madness, and Neil Gaiman reread. It's a very long title. But... Um, They go through each issue of The Sandman. So if you want to read along and you need help kind of figuring it out, it's a little bit better than the Wikipedia entry for The Sandman. And it's on their their website. I've never read any of this, but I have read some of the other Tor reread series. They did a Lovecraft one that I read. They did one for the Elric books, which actually ties into... Uh, if we end up doing recommendations at the end of this, as we've done before, kind of ties into what I'm going to end up recommending. Well, I think, I mean, we could, we could do the recommendations right now. So for my recommendation, which is no brainer, is the Neil Gaiman compilation called Fragile Things, Short Fictions and Wonders, which he wrote in 2006. I think this is a really good compilation of his short stories it has The Study in Emerald, which is the Sherlock Holmes Cthulhu mashup that he does, which is very good. I love that story. That story's great. It also has How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which is kind of like, um, he won a Locus Award for that. That's kind of like a story. It's kind of supernatural, kind of like, uh, you know, an awkward coming of age story, which is, it's a very sweet story. And he's adept. That's is or is being adapted into a show now i believe ah but my favorite part of the series of this book is it has monarch of the glen 
which is the novella where Shadow goes to Scotland. So if you're an American Gods fan, you might want to um, check that out. Yeah, Fragile Things is very good. I read Fragile Things pretty soon after it came out. I believe it was the first piece of Neil Gaiman's prose writing that I had ever read. Um, and I I loved it. Uh, you can, if you were to go back through all my writing, you can definitely pinpoint the moment where I read it because it's where I stopped trying to be Douglas Adams and started trying to be Neil Gaiman very hard. And I'm not sure if I've ever totally recovered from that. I'm definitely not consciously aping his style anymore. But that really that really got in me and infected my my uh, writing style. I'm frantically looking up this, but I don't want to misinform people. I think that the that Neil Gaiman reads the Fragile Things audiobook, which I have listened to. But I'm conf- I want to check that because I know he does a lot of his own audiobooks, but I'm not quite sure if he does this one. Yeah. Oh, so the, I have a weird relationship with Fragile Things. It's just that I read it and I loved it. And then I lent it to my friend, Ruben. Shout out to Ruben. And then he lent it to other people and I have yet to see it. It has disappeared into the ether. I think it eventually get, ended up getting lent to someone I didn't like, who I will never talk to again, who probably doesn't even have it anymore. Uh, they were a monstrous person who didn't like sandwiches. And I but- will not truck with that. But your your book is now being passed along and more people are reading it. I hope it is. I hope it didn't end with the sandwich hater. I hope they didn't hoard my volume. Uh, but yeah, and I've never bought another copy of it. I keep thinking, oh, I should. I should buy another copy. But I, I never have. But so he does narrate the audiobook. Oh, great. So if you want Neil Gaiman. I like to listen to the audiobooks that Neil Gaiman reads because I like... I feel like he's reading me a story, and I like that a lot. He's a very soothing voice, and he's very enthusiastic about his work. So I do, I especially like audiobooks that are narrated by the author, but I think he does a really good job when he narrates his own books. So. Yeah, he's, he's got a good voice, and he's a very he's a very nice man, it seems. At least that's the impression I get of him. Uh, so what I wanted to recommend is another comic, actually, which is... Uh, the Elric comics illustrated by P. Craig Russell. I think if you dug the, oops, I think if you dug the art in this, like the, the Sam Keith stuff with the way he messed with the panels and, and drew these sort of like, you know, rich, complicated pages. I think you'll really enjoy P. Craig Russell's art. He's a great artist. uh, And he did these amazing illustrations of Elric that don't really look like any sort of fantasy comic you've ever read before. And they do a lot of interesting stuff with the the panel layouts and just the like art direction almost of the work. Uh, there's a Michael Moorcock library. I think there's like two, three volumes of that. They're all P. Greg Russell. Uh, he's illustrated most of the, at least the early Elric stuff. So I'd highly recommend that. I mean, I'd recommend almost anything he's done. He's He did some work on Hellboy that was good. Uh, but yeah, I think check that out. If you dig uh, weird fantasy, if you dig interesting comics art, you'll probably enjoy that. Cool. I think he also does some work eventually on Sandman that we'll see. I could be wrong about that. Stay tuned. So what are we reading next time? Uh, so my pick is my pick is uh, Talon Ukbar Orbis Tertius by Jorge Luis Borges. We mentioned him in the last episode. 
Uh, I just recently read a ton of his stories, and this is uh, one of one of my faves. I think it's an interesting piece to read, you know, in contrast to Sandman, because it's, it's got a lot to say about, like, writing and mythology and world building. It's kind of a horror story about world building. It's also, we talked a lot about the early image books or the proto-image books. One of those is Doom Patrol, whose first big story is straight up a riff on this that also involves a similar idea of, like, a predatory constructed world. So I don't know what you're going to do with that information, but that's there. Well, it's going to be very difficult to link these two stories together because my choice is called St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves by Karen Russell, which was published in 2007. It's a um, it's the titular story to her compilation of short stories that she published. She's most known for writing Swamplandia. That book rules. Which was a 2011, it was a first novel, it was a dynamic first novel. I, I recommend that to anyone. If people ask what they should read, I always recommend that. So we'll be reading that. Before we go, I made mention to about Seal People. We talked about that oh, briefly. Yeah. We're not going to be able to get to it, but the reason why I said hold on to that thought is because I'm reading The Snow Queen. Okay. And in that story, there are Seal-type people creatures that are a component of the story so that's good i don't want people being like "Mm, you said you were going to talk about seal people and you never did i was thinking that there would be someone who would ask what we meant by that so we'll talk about that when i actually finish the novel in a later episode but that's kind of based on a hands christian anderson um story the snow queen so okay cool cool uh, yeah, this was a this was a long discussion. I mean, obviously, normally we do two stories. This was a collection that had like eight stories. It almost. had eight issues, but three of those issues are the same story or one story. Uh, so yeah, so now you, I think now you understand why we're gonna we're gonna alternate them yeah. because there's a lot of discussion that we could have had about other stuff that we didn't because we were talking about Sandman, and some of these other volumes are even more dense than this one, right? So, so it's a, you know, it's a special episode today Mm -hmm. where we get into the beginning of Sandman. Yeah. So, um, you know, read comics, read, uh, what is it? What was the name of your story? Say it again, please. (laughs) My short story? Yes. St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves by Karen Mm. Russell. Yeah. And read, uh, Tlon Ukbar Orbis Tertius by Jorge Luis Borges. I will absolutely pick more of his stories later on, but I think this is a good intro for us. You haven't really read any of this stuff No, before, I, right? haven't. I haven't. I've, I've read some Karen Russell. I haven't read this story. I'm a big fan of her other short story collection, Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Exactly. Well, has one of my favorite fictional portrayals of probably my second favorite vampires in fiction. The first one being another Vertigo comic, Preacher. Cool. All right. So, uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Thanks for uh, hanging in. And sweet dreams.